Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and last week we talked about the seventh day, and in verse 1 it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, and by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all of his work, which he had created and made. And now we're going to move into the next section, and it's kind of a new section, and it's actually uh, prefaced in that way, verses 4 through 7. Let me read it to you. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this new portion of Scripture, a vibrantly new portion that really focuses on retelling Genesis one twenty seven and the creation of Adam and Eve, it, it gets into detail for us, and, and literally God exposits chapter 1 with chapter 2. It's pretty amazing, Lord. Thank you that we have your word that can tell us these things because there is no way that we'd be able to know it without you revealing to it. And so, Father, we just uh, submit ourselves to you today. Help us to calm our minds from all the cares of this last week and the anticipation of the cares coming up. Father, we live breakneck, paced lives. Give us rest today so that we might worship you uh, truly in spirit and with our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this section is going to be divided up by a number of subsections. We're going to recount the creation of Adam. Uh, We're going to go into the description of Eden, the Garden of Eden. We're going to talk about the prohibition and promise that God uh, gave to man and woman. And we're going to recount the creation of Eve. Guess what? We're not going to get all through that today. There's just no way, and I can't even tell you how long it's going to take to get through this because it's so rich, and let me tell you, it's so pertinent to where we're at as a culture right now. This stuff is pay dirt. This is why I'm doing it, uh, because we need these uh, foundations reestablished, and you young people listen up to this stuff because you're going to be hearing all sorts of contrary and contradicting information as to what the Word of God says, and you need to be okay with asking questions. If you're confused and you hear something out there that's different than what is being taught from the pulpit or in your Sunday schools, ask questions. There's no harm in asking questions. So first, I just want to talk about chapter 2 of Genesis, especially beginning in verse 4. Is it complementary to chapter 1 or is it contradictory? Is it a different account of the creation story. And we need to settle that before we can really move on. There's some background that's necessary, so let's clear that background out of the way so we can be free to just trundle through the good stuff. Genesis 1 and 2, some have erroneously surmised that they present two different accounts of creation. And they have even gone so far as to suggest that there were different authors behind the chapters, but also the rest of the Pentateuch. I'll get into that in a moment. But as we pour over the text of Genesis 2, I believe it'll become abundantly clear that Genesis 2 actually complements Genesis chapter 1, contrary to the error that's out there, that they're two different accounts. These two chapters view the same event from two different angles, and both were written by Moses post-Exodus, from Egypt. This was written after they got out of Egypt. 
and Moses led them out, and he's training up these million-plus slaves that were held in Egypt, and he's telling them, he's giving them their inheritance as God's children, Israel. And both chapters promote differing emphasis on the creation account. Genesis 1-1 all the way to 2-3, which includes the seventh day, focuses on the cosmological angle of the creation. It's very general, very broad, and talks about the creation of all things, the cosmology, if you will, of the creation account. But then in Genesis 2-4, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25, it focuses much more on the anthropological or it focuses on man, the creation of man and woman and the interplay that God has with them. And so it complements, or as I said, it actually exposits. Exposit to expound means to open up and to explain. So chapter 2 actually exposits chapter 1, and specifically as it pertains to mankind or humanity. The names for God differ between chapters 1 and chapter 2. And that has been used by the detractors to promote the theory that there were two authors. Now, unsaved people will do anything, right? I love watching, well, I don't love it, it's a love-hate thing. But it's interesting to me to watch these specials that you see on TV every once in a while where these experts are going to tell us about the Bible. And they may have all sorts of degrees, but they do not believe in the God of the Bible. And they don't believe in the supernatural. And they come out, you know, all dignified with all their letters behind their name and just spout complete air. And people just go, oh, wow, that was heavy. Well, more non-believers. But unbelievers will say just about anything. And some of these men have promoted themselves as scholars, biblical scholars, and they promote the theory that there were two authors to the two chapters. And they base it on the fact that there are two different names for God. And I'll get to that in a minute and define them for you. But in reality, a more cogent interpretation is seen when considering the cosmological and anthropological emphasis. When you take those kind of angles into view, and that they're two different perspectives on one event, it kind of opens it up to us. And this will become more clear as I go on. In Genesis 1, the name that God uses is Elohim, right? We learned that from the very first verse, Elohim. And it's a, it's a name that denotes power and might, as one would expect, for the one who created the heavens and the earth and the entire universe and everything in them. He's powerful. He's all-powerful. But in Genesis chapter 2, the name used for God is a compound name, and you see it right in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth where they were created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, created them. And the compound name, Yahweh Elohim, is used 11 times in just 22 verses. That's a lot. It's as though God's saying, here, listen up. (laughs) I want you to pick up this thing. It's a a great signal that he's trying to tell us something. Yahweh is the name that God told Moses to use when the captive Israelites would ask Moses, what is his name? And what will I say to them? Moses asked God. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Well, I am is Yahweh. It's Yahweh, the God who is. That name is the name of covenant. It's a name that shows closeness and intimate involvement with those whom he is God over. Genesis 2 shows, and the use of the compound name Yahweh Elohim shows, that the powerful God of the cosmos, Elohim, who created everything by his word, is also the condescending God, Yahweh, who created the human race tenderly and carefully as a potter might shape a vessel from a lump of clay. This stuff is so far beyond our able to grasp. It really is, and we need to take this by faith, but it's patently clear. For those interested in looking up the theory of two authors and more, 
and two competing accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, you can check out what is called the uh, documentary hypothesis. There's something for you to write down, you theologues. The documentary hypothesis theory, or it's also called the GEDP, GEDP theory, where different names that are used for God are the basis for these detractors to say it wasn't Moses that wrote these. And of course, they changed the dates to be much, much later uh, in in history than what was really written uh, when the Pentateuch was written. And the first one is J, and that is the Jehovahist or the Yahwehists, J. The second name is given for E, and that is those places where Elohim is used. So wherever Elohim is used, that's the Elohim author. Wherever Yahweh is used, that's the Yahwehist author. And then there's the Deuteronomist, that is the D, supposedly authoring Deuteronomy. And of course, there's the priestly, those who authored and penned the portions of Leviticus. But this is all higher criticism. It comes out of Germany and it's, it's men trying to put together and understand God's word, but they don't have the Holy Spirit's illumining in their hearts. And they come up with these theories, and they confuse Christians that are actual Christians trying to figure out answers to this. This theory has been dismantled by contemporary scholarship, biblical scholarship, should have never caused as much problem or sway due to the fact that the internal evidence just within Scripture that attribute the authorship to uh, Moses of the first five books is, is ample. In 1 Corinthians 9, 9, you have the Apostle Paul. That's in the New Testament. He says this, For it is written in the law of Moses, the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. In Nehemiah 13, 1, it says this, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses, which means the Pentateuch, the five books, the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. In Joshua, and this is kind of important because Joshua was an understudy of Moses. He knew him intimately. In Joshua uh, 23.6, it says this, Be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn again from it to the right hand or to the left. And maybe most importantly, Jesus, the Son of God. In Luke 24, 27, when he was talking to those on the road to Emmaus on the day, the first day of his resurrection, he said, it says in uh, Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Those are two designates of the entire Old Testament. Moses being the first five books, the prophets covering the rest. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's a good plug for the Chronicles of Redemption, right? Start in the beginning. Just trundle your way through those Old Testament narratives all pointing to Jesus Christ. So the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were definitely written by Moses even as the scriptures affirm. So just that alone should cut the legs out from underneath the uh, J-E-P-D or J-E-D-P theory. It's referred to as both. The next thing that I want to bring to you to help you to understand that these are not contradictory accounts, but differing perspectives of the same event, is a little word. It's very interesting. It's toledoth, toledoth. And it means generations. Genesis 2.4 marks a new section in the biblical account. And there are three choices for interpreting Genesis 2.4. Let's look at it. And this is the account, or the Toledoth, or the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now the three ways that we can interpret that little word account or generation, is one, we can say this is a conclusion to chapter one. You realize that there weren't chapter headings and verses in the original text. They were just written, and they came later. 
So some would take that verse, verse 4, to be a final statement, a closing, if you will, of that portion. For others, it is a summary statement. It just kind of summarizes everything that was said before it. But to others, you might interpret it as an introduction to what is coming. And that's what I believe. That 2-4 is an introduction to what proceeds after it. I'll tell you why. It says, these are the generations, or the, um, how does the New American Standard say? The account. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. And it marks a new section from the previous relating to the seven-day creation account. It is a new section, but it's not contradictory. This is a Hebrew literary device, a toledoth, which it used 11 times in Genesis. 11 times. And the next break would be in Genesis 5.1. So 2.4 is the first one. And then Genesis 5.1, you might want to write these down and take a look at them. Genesis 5.1, and that is the generations of Adam. And then in 6.9, you have the generations, or Toledoth, of Noah. In 10.1, the Toledoth of Shem. In 11.10, the generations of Ham. In 11.27, the generations of Jepheth. In 25.12, you have the generations of Ishmael. In 25.19, the generations of Isaac. And in 36.1, the generations of Esau. And also in 37.2, the generations of Jacob. There are 10 uses of the literary form of Toledoth. And many say that this forms the literary structure of the book of Genesis. And so it's very, very interesting. And what it means, I'm going to explain to you now. Each of the instances, except Genesis 2-4, contains a personal name, as I read those off. And then it describes the descendants of that person. Okay? So the very meaning of the word Toledoth comes from the idea to bear or to beget. And therefore, it's an introduction to the descendants of each of those named in the Toledoth. So the generations of Adam then bring us information on his descendants. And the generation of Noah, the same way, all the way through. And for that reason, we understand 5.1 as introducing the descendants of Noah. Now, the reason that this is important, you might think, oh, man, you're going down in the weeds again. Come on, give me something I can hold on to. I'm giving it to you, okay? You just got to think a little bit more, write down the notes. The reason it's important is that it answers very succinctly whether or not there are two distinct accounts or even contradictory accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2-4, the Toledoth, is the introduction to the generations of the heaven and earth. The first section, Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, okay, is describing what took place in the creation week. And then Genesis 2-4 introduces what will follow in the heavens and the earth, which he had created. It shows what came forth from that creation and that creation week of the heavens and the earth. It is a continuation of what was described to have taken place in Genesis 1.1 to 2.3. So Genesis 2.4 tells us, it introduces to us something that follows. And this is very interesting because what follows? Humanity. That's the emphasis of Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 25, is humanity, the anthropological element of his creation. And we're going to see the story of man, everything in history entailing and including man, including his fall, that's in Genesis chapter 3. We'll find about his plan of redemption, chapter 3, verse 15. And then the consummation of all things, And finally, God's recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. So this Toledoth goes all the way to the end of time. Because it's talking about the heavens and the earth. That's why there wasn't a name attached to it. It's what God has done. And that's very, very interesting. It shows us the continuation from that that 
Creation Week. Now, with some of these initial questions out of the way, hopefully I've at least answered some of the questions you may have, Genesis 2 is a deeper description of what God created in Genesis 1. It's not a separate contradictory creation account. And we can move on to the beautiful story of the personal creator, God, and his interaction with his special creation, the crown of his creation, mankind. All of those days, six days, five days, and the start of the sixth day, were a lead-up and a preparation for the crown of his creation, which is mankind, Adam and Eve. So let's look at that formation and what the environment was at that time. In verse 5, verse 5 says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And you might be going, what? I mean, doesn't that seem odd? Why is that dropped right in there? It's kind of like I was tracking with the days of creation, God's a creator and all that. That's cool, you know. But now why is he talking about shrubs and plants and stuff like that? Well, there's a reason. It almost seems out of place in a narrative, but it's not. Remember, there are two facts that need to be taken into account to help us interpret chapter 2. Remember that chapter 2 is a more in-depth recap of what took place in chapter 1. And so Genesis 2, 6, 2, 5 and 6, is describing the condition of the earth prior to the creation of man. It's gone back and it's recapping what the earth was like prior to the creation of man. So it's not a linear continuation where like we're going on now from the seventh day of rest and now God's explaining all sorts of things. He jumps back and tells us what the earth was like before the creation of man. Because he says right there in verse 7, or in verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the earth. And just before that, at the end of verse 5, he says, there was no man to cultivate the ground. You can see where an unbeliever would go, aha, this is a different account, because he already created man. It's kind of like when it says, let us make man in our image, Okay, according to our likeness, people say, well, he's talking to the angels. No, he's not talking to the angels. You have to understand scripture. You have to dig down a little bit to understand. So first, remember that this is recounting what took place in Genesis chapter 1 prior to man being created. Secondly, God's word often foreshadows, and this is what I want you to get here, because as we go through Genesis, you're going to see this more and more, where God foreshadows what he's going to be talking about in the near future here. And he often foreshadows what's going to happen. Like Moses is, is wonderfully skilled. Where did Moses grow up? In Egypt. And where in Egypt? In the slums? In Pharaoh's house, he had all the education of the, the reigning power of that day. There are actually universities and libraries that have been uncovered that were part of that time. So he was very good with this. And he does a lot of foreshadowing. And of course, God is superseding over his personality, but he uses his literary skills. Isaac, the story of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22 gives us a really interesting and a very clear foreshadowing that Moses writes into the story. They're on their way up the mountain, and God has told uh, Moses to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac says in verse 7 of chapter 22, he says, Father, and Abraham answered and said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Fair question, right? Scary question. And Moses, or excuse me, Abraham said, was I using the term Moses? I'm sorry. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now this was a foreshadowing of what God would do in place of Abraham offering his son. Moses wrote into that story so, I mean, we're, we're all pretty much scandalized that God asked him to sacrifice his only son, right? So he gives us a little foreshadowing, saying there's something 
that you're going to see coming up here. And really, it was a reference to the ram that was caught in a thicket that became the substitute for Abraham having to offer Isaac. That's foreshadowing. That's what I'm talking about. Now, one interpretation of Genesis 2, 5, and 6 is how it foreshadows the fall and focuses on those specific parts of the earth that would be affected by the fall. You see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Post-fall, what happened to the earth, what happened to the plantings and so forth. Therefore, the effects of the fall before the creation of man had not yet been felt on the land. The shrub of the field and the plant of the field are not the same as the vegetation that was created on day three in chapter one. This is talking something different. And the vegetation that's, cre- uh, that's created on day three, it doesn't say they were of the field. This is different. This is talking about cultivated crops, folks. Rather, after the fall, there are thorns and thistles that you have to work through by the sweat of your brow in order to get the plants to eat that are cultivated. And so it's a foreshadowing shadowing of what's going to come. And as is the mention that there is no man to work the ground. This is before uh, Adam was created. And there, there wasn't any thorns or thistles yet, but there wasn't any cultivated plants to eat yet either. If you understand that. And he goes on, men who hold the perspective of this interpretation are Casuto, uh, a Jewish commentator, and John Salehammer, uh, Minnesotan actually, and you can look those guys up. It's really an interesting thought of how God is foreshadowing and preparing us for what's to come in the fall. Um, here's another instance, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. There, there wasn't rain yet before the creation of man, and many would say that there wasn't rain until the flood. Um, there's refutation of that. I, I don't know if I can be dogmatic against that. Um, I do hold to the fact that there was a canopy. I do, you know, I'm, I'm kuno in that. Kuno is an Indonesian word for old-fashioned. I'm old-fashioned in that because there's refutation to that too. But I just can't understand it otherwise. And so maybe I'm just not bright enough. That's possible. But verse 5, it's interesting. Verse 6 is coupled with verse 5, and it's still describing the condition of the earth before the creation of man. And in connection with verse 5, it should be taken in line with the cultivation of the earth, which had not yet taken place because man had not yet been created to cultivate it. And so the comment about God not having sent rain upon the earth is coupled with that there was no man to cultivate the ground. Cultivation of the ground came later after the creation of mankind. And that's why I say there could have been rain. There's no place in the scripture that says, and this one little verse here in verse... um, verse 5, where it says God had not set rain upon the earth, that could mean just up until the creation of man and when he began to work in the garden and you know, so forth. doesn't have to stretch all the way to Noah and the ark. But you be convinced before God what you believe on that. So it is speaking, this mist that used to come and rise from the ground is speaking of a hydra. Uh, logic cycle. It's, it's how moisture comes upon the earth. And it's very interesting. It would seem that the text is identifying a distinct hydrologic system prior to the creation of man in comparison to what we understand the hydrologic system to be presently. But it's all thrown up into the air, <laughs> no pun intended, um, <laughs> when you have the flood. Especially if you believe in the canopy theory because you know, the fountains of the deep came open and the floodgates of heaven opened. And so that, that canopy that was protecting the environment of the earth and blocking out, you know, harmful rays from the sun, giving longevity to man, because after the flood, men began to die all the way up until the point of being 80 years old. Prior to that, 930 years old, Methuselah. So it's interesting because there's a different hydrologic system after the flood. This is kind of a difficult area to go into. We don't have a lot of background information on it. But it is interesting 
Uh, Henry Morris, who's a creation scientist, and I've quoted him before, he says, our present hydrologic system came about post-flood. And the Bible identifies this system in a couple of places. Listen to these verses, those of you who think that the Bible's not scientific. Ecclesiastes 1, 6 and 7 says, blowing toward the south and then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. And it's just talking about that hydrologic system that we have, where there's condensation and, and the waters condense and they go up into the clouds and then the clouds rain. And you've got this whole system in place so that the oceans aren't overflowed. Job 36, 26 through 29 says, Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water, and they distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down, and they drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? He gives us these hints that he knows what's going on. He put it in place. And we are just Johnny-come-lately finding out these things. Originally created the earth's daily water supply. Originally now, okay, the mist coming up from the ground. The water supply came primarily from local evaporation and condensation. And there was also a system of spring-fed rivers. And the change in temperatures between daytime and nighttime apparently was adequate to energize daily evaporation from each of the bodies of water and its condensation and dew and fog in the surrounding area each night. This arrangement was implemented on the second and third days of the creation week prior to the formation of the plants on the latter part of the third day and definitely prior to man's creation. All this to say that there's a lot in these verses if you want to delve into them. But there's very, very simple explanations for these things that we can just take them and move forward and trust God with what he says. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a friend that questions everything that you say. <laughs> uh, are they really friends? You know, what they, you know, I have to explain everything that I'm saying. But some people are like that with God's word. They're just dissatisfied. They're always picking away and asking. Nothing wrong with asking questions because younger people, I told you, ask questions so you can get answers. There are always answers. But don't be the one that just never ceases to ask questions, never comes to a firm conviction. Now I want to talk about the formation of man, verse 7. I'm just going to touch on it today. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Bible teaches that God is distinct from his creation. He is not part of his creation. For he's made it and he rules over it. And the term often used to indicate that God is much greater than then his creation is the one that I've used already, transcendent. He is beyond, outside of his creation. He's greater than his creation. It means that he's far above his creation in the sense that he is greater than it because he created it. He is before all. But you can take that to an extreme, and some have. God is also very much involved with creation, for it is continually dependent upon him for its existence and functioning. He didn't just create and then go in an opposite direction and just leave us to our own devices from that point on. Colossians 1, 16 17 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. He created everything. And then it says, All things were created by him, and he is before all things, transcendent, and in him, all things hold together. That's eminent. He is close. So he is beyond, and yet he is not disengaged. And there's real value to this concept of his eminence 
and his transcendence. And I want to tell you what they are. Because right here in Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 7, which uses the other name for God, Yahweh Elohim, there's a number of worldviews that are challenged right off the bat. You want to talk about apologetics? Here you go. Materialism. Yahweh Elohim created man. Materialism is a belief that material universe is all that there is, and there is no God. Well, that's very contrary to the Bible. The Bible begins presuppositionally with God. God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't give us evidence to prove that he exists. It just states it outright. Anyone who focuses all their life energies on earning money and getting more things are quite simply practical materialists. They believe in materialism. This can even be true of Christians. They can slip into this who live for the world because their lives would not be much different if they did not believe in God. Because their focus is world-centered. And the Taliabal were materialists. They believed only in their flesh. Now, their people would die, and they'd let the flesh rot off of their bodies, and they'd wait until that happened, and they'd take their bones and wash their bones and put them in a eustuary, which is a box, and they'd keep their, bo- uh, their bones of their loved ones in their homes because they hoped that someday they would resurrect and come back to life. But they had no idea of the spiritual elements of man. It was all physical, flesh. Okay, That's materialism. And the existence of Yahweh Elohim refutes materialism, point blank. How about pantheism? This is a worldview that believes that everything, that's pan, is God. Theism, pantheism. Okay? But this is to deny several of God's characteristics revealed in Scripture. If the whole universe is God, then he has no distinct personality. He's been absorbed by the universe. Also, he's no longer immutable, unchanging, because the universe changes, doesn't it? It's not the same as it was before the flood. And therefore, God would also be changing If he's seen to be the universe, he can no longer be holy because evil is in the universe and therefore in God. If God is the universe, and God is not evil. And such pantheistic systems of thought, such as Buddhism, destroy the personal identity of God and thereby also destroy the personal human identity and there is no room for personality of which we all know exists. Just look around you. The existence of Yahweh Elohim refutes pantheism. It refutes dualism. Teaches that both, that's the teaching that both God and material universe have eternally existed side by side, and there are two ultimate forces in existence God and matter. And there's conflict between God and the evil in the material universe, and this worldview denies God's sovereign reign over his creation. It also contradicts Genesis 1.31, that everything that God created was good. If it was good, how can you have this dichotomy and uh, dualistic approach to things? Because God called it all good. Here's one that's maybe we have some people that were interested in the Star Wars. I, I hear that that was a big thing. I was gone in the jungles during that time, so I don't get it, but that's okay. It's okay. I don't get the music of that time either. So I go right from the 70s to there is no music anymore. (laughs) I'm sorry. People sing off key. Guitars are out of tune. They make a noise. So the force in Star Wars is an example of this worldview of dualism where the force contains both good and evil, right? There is no transcendent God who rules over Star Wars. There's no transcendent God in that series. Now, I'm not saying it's sin for you to enjoy that movie series. Most New Age philosophies also fall into this camp. If evil is admitted as existing in the universe, then it has an equal power that is good, and they are and have been eternally in conflict. But the existence of Yahweh Elohim destroys that. Right here, right where we're reading, right in Genesis 
How about deism? That's kind of what I was talking about a little bit. Deism, um, more than other worldviews, we can see where transcendent, eminent character of God is really denied. Deism, for the most part, holds that God is transcendent. They do admit that. He's other than. He is great. Okay, Even with the moral values, who will one day judge, they allow that he is moral and everything. But deists would deny the eminence or the closeness of God, the involvement of God with us as individuals. A deist does not believe that God is involved in his creation. The example often given is the proverbial clockmaker who wound up the universe as a clock and then he just left it to run on its own. He is distant. He is far away. And he is. He is transcendent. But he is also eminent and he is close by. So it's not difficult to see how contrary this worldview is to the entire history of the Bible, which is in truth his story. History, his story. The Bible traces God's active involvement in the world and the existence of Yahweh Elohim refutes this. Who knew that the compound name of God, Yahweh Elohim, would have such a far-reaching impact on the worldviews of the world? But it does. That's why we're talking about foundations here. These are foundational truths, but they do impact everything around us right now today. Well, in the creation of man, Genesis 2-7, then God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, I just want to talk about two words, and we're going to wrap it up for today. And just briefly, the Lord God formed man. This word expresses the relation of a craftsman to material. It displays skill, such as evidenced in its use in Psalm 94, 9. It says this, listen to this. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? <laughs> and he who formed the eye, does he not see? And there's that same word, formed. Okay. Also in Psalm 139, uh, where I was reading today, I just want to go back to it so you can see how important this is. Psalm 139, and I just want to read verses um, 14 through 16 for you. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought. In the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were not one of them. This depicts Yahweh Elohim to be like a potter taking a lump of unformed clay and artistically fashioning it into something of value. He fashioned the woman in verse. 22 of chapter 2, he fashioned the woman, which means he built her into a woman. Ladies, you have God to thank. We are his handiwork, his work of art, and we are set to display his glory. This again is an exposition and opening up of, of chapter 1, verse 27, where he created man and woman, created he them, in his image according to his likeness. Gives more detail. He formed man. This word yatzar in the Hebrew is often used to describe the work necessary to make an earthen pottery as well as other personally developed materials or even plans. Artists, you think of writing or creating something. The Hebrew verb denotes personal involvement, hands-on, if you will. It's the work of a sculptor or a painter or a composer. It's much more intimate than, than just doing something. And, and I, I just love the intimacy here because it blows my mind that the same one that created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the entire universe, right? Now he comes down to us, condescends, and he has hands on as he forms the man. 
as he forms the man. Isaiah 64, 8 says this. This is so good. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. Oh, you stop right there. You say, that's cool. That's, I like that. That's, I, I identify with that. Then it goes, we are the clay. You are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. All of us. All through the scripture, constantly calling out to us, revealing himself, who he is and who we are not. If we could only grasp the implications of that simple verse, we'd be able to live our lives in the full joy of our creation. It's reminiscent of Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You don't have the freedom to do what you want to do with your body or your mind or your life or your career. We are his workmanship. And so many of us are disengaged from this concept and we just go along thinking we're going to create our families, we're going to create our career, until all of a sudden the bottom drops out of things and then we run to God and hopefully it gets a hold of the heart to where we're submissive to him again and say, not my will, but thy will be done, O Lord. Get in the right relationship with God again, right? So this is very, very important. We can get a hold of this, but there's more. I feel like the commercial, right? But wait, (laughs) there's more. He not only formed us, he breathed. He breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. The second word breathe, nafak, means to puff, inflate, or to blow into. This brings us face to face with the intimacy of his forming as we see the Lord God face to face in almost a a kiss-like significance with his creation. It displays not merely making, but also giving of the Lord. God in the creation of man. Job 32.8 brings light to this importance of the breath of God breathed into the nostrils of man. It says this, quote, but it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. Makes us who we are. That breathing into us. And what did God breathe into the nostrils? The breath of life. It means also, as I said, the puff or a vital breath, or a wind, and can also mean divine inspiration, intellect. It was the breath of life, meaning that which is living. Man's physical nature, made from dust, from clay if you will, cannot merely be explained by components that he or she can be reduced to in a science lab. See, the materialists are lost here. They can't figure out who we are. That's why people are so lost. In the world. That's why people don't know if they're a male or if they're a female. Right? They've deviated so far from the simple basics of God's word that they have deceived themselves now into thinking there's something that they could not possibly be. You know, what's next? Next week is Mother's Day. Is it going to be, you know, birth, birthing person day or what? I mean, the very, very fiber of our society is being torn to shreds before our eyes, people. We need to tell others about these foundations that you're learning here. We need to challenge others and and just challenge them to be real. You know, we used to have a saying back in the hippie days, get real, man, right? Get real. Uh, A lot of people have lost their head. We need to find their head. Help them find their head again. Crazy stuff. Man is from the ground, like the animals. So he is natural and earthy, that's true. But it also states that after God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of man, the man became a living being. Not so, the creatures. He's spiritual, according to 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And the last Adam, Christ became a life-giving spirit. So the thing that marks man separate from animals remains the fact that only man was created in the image of God. 
and only man received the breath of God, making him a living being. There's something to be said for the intimate involvement of the Lord God in forming the man, singular, and the doubly intimate act of breathing the breath of life into his nostrils so that he became a living soul. Made from dirt, a man's value is not in the physical components that form his body, but in the quality of life which forms his soul. It's unseen, so it's harder to have faith in, but that's what distinguishes us. Job 33, 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Well, we return to that thought of transcendence of God, Elohim, and then that closeness and eminence of Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim. There's so much more to this portion of Scripture that we'll continue to look into the next time we're together. But for today, please contemplate on the intimacy and personableness of such a great transcendent God, Yahweh Elohim. Let's pray. Father, we could not know these things, but by your revelation, we are blessed as people to not only have your word, but to have men here that will explain it to us and help us to understand it. Help us not to just listen on Sunday and go away and come back next Sunday and listen again. Help us to take these things and find out how they apply to our personal lives and then to share these truths with those around us. Father, the world around us really needs this revelation. The world around us needs these foundational basic truths because they're being forgotten as men have turned away from you. Help us to be the salt and the light in the world that we're called to be. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.